Hello, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that will interview a man when that man is Mike Gravel. Today we have Kellen, Ambria, Hope, Zoe, and Laura. Yeah, big crew. Um, you know, before we get into our interview today, uh, I think we wanted to address a question that some longtime listeners may have coming into today's episode. <laughs> As many of you know, the animating drive behind our podcast is bringing you conversations with people who you might not otherwise hear in the left podcast world. We're an all-women group, and we generally bring on guests who are women, non-binary, or genderqueer. However, we have, on one occasion, broken this rule. A couple of us in long-term partnerships with cisgender men interviewed them for our 2018 Valentine's Day episode, hashtag Season of the Bitch Deep Cuts. Want to interject that I never approved of this episode oh my secretly, God. deep down inside. And not because I was single. Yes, it was because I was single. <laughs> so um, here at Season of the Bitch, <laughs> we do <laughs> usually bring dudes on this podcast, but really only when they're an actual part of one of our families. This is why, for example, my adoptive father, Terry Cruz, has an open invitation to come talk to us. Note, he doesn't believe in nepotism and he wants me to find success without being in his shadow, which I totally get and respect. Love you, Dad. Uh, but you're still welcome to come on the show <laughs> next time. So with all of that being said, this week, we are so excited to have on the podcast my internet grandpa. That's right. Today's episode features presidential candidate and former Alaska Senator Mike Gravel. Um, I would also like to add that here with us today, if you did not know who just did our intro, it's Mike Gravel's reply guy, Kellen. That's true. He yes. is my he is my internet grandpa, and I am his internet granddaughter slash reply guy, and I am so excited to have him on this podcast. So with no further ado, let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast, Senator Gravel. Yay! Please. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Please tell our listeners who you are. Who are you? Uh, former U.S. Senator and uh, uh, former uh, presidential candidate and uh, uh, a person who's active uh, on issues. And the most important issue that I know of is the, the creation and operation of a legislature of the people, whereby you can make laws, uh, enact policy that you feel is important uh, for you and your constituency and society. Very, very cool. We're so excited to have you on. Um, and we we are really excited about everything that you're doing. So um, will you share with us what your what is your goal with getting into the democratic debates? The to, to use the celebrity nature of this attention mm -hmm. to cause people to focus on how to address the problems of human governance. Uh, right now, uh, we have representative government where the representative representatives have a monopoly on lawmaking. Well, law is the central core of civilization. It's the central core of human governance. So if the people cannot enjoy the power to make laws, they then cannot 
uh, enjoy uh, developing policy issues or the elements of governance that would benefit the people. So that that is what floats my boat, the creation <laughs> and operation of a legislature of the people. And the, the manual for that in great detail is a book that I have coming out in August, which is called Human Governance, the Failure of Representative Government and a Solution, the People. Amazing. Um, I recently read the Jacobin article about you. I don't know if you saw this, um, but I learned about your unique journey as a politician. You seem to have a real tendency to go against the grain in a way that I don't think we see a lot of politicians do. So what's different about you and what are the benefits and the drawbacks of being such a rabble rouser? Well, uh, first off, the benefit is that uh, maybe I'm blessed with a long life. So I would <laughs> 89 and going on 90, but uh, but those are the facts. Now, the the issues that I've always been passionate about uh, are issues uh, like what Bernie Sanders and Tulsi Gabbard described to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that, in my mind, is very important. The problem is I see no way to get it enacted into law without the people being able to do this directly. So that's the reason why all of my activities for the last 30 years have been to develop this process of how we would enact uh, a legislature of the people and how it actually would operate in a very deliberative fashion because lawmaking is a very serious enterprise. Uh, but it's, it is the enterprise if people wish to govern themselves, which of course we don't. We give our power away on election day to representatives who then, of course, adhere to the will of the elites who paid for their campaigns and paid for their maintenance in office. The, that's the reason why I'm involved in all of these issues in hopes that they can be properly addressed by society. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, Sort of along those similar lines of um, taking non-traditional paths, you make a lot of media appearances that are not traditional um, for a high-profile politician, for example, um, our podcast. <laughs> but you've also appeared on like Alex Jones's show, some of the like more underground right-wing radio shows. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your approach to the media. Well, first off, I sincerely believe the mainstream media is controlled by the military-industrial complex and Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and I'm joined in that view by Jill Lepore, uh, whose recent history, These Truths, uh, has, and she's the first historian that I've run across that has addressed that problem directly. And so if you have a situation where the media is controlled by a certain group, uh, then you have the people being misinformed uh, on the issues uh, that affect their lives. And this is very serious because a democracy can only survive if the people are informed about the issues. And so when they're uninformed, then they cede the ground of public opinion uh, to the elites who then manipulate that process to their own selfish benefits. Incredible. I think we have another media question, social media. 
<laughs> nice transition. Um, Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a, a little bit lighter of a question, but for anyone listening who doesn't know, uh, your Twitter presence is being run by essentially two teens in a trench coat. And I was wondering, what was it like? What has it been like working with them? And also, what made you trust them when they initially contacted you? Well, when they initially contacted me, they asked me if I would run for president. And I responded by saying, do you know how old I am? <laughs> and they said, no, that, that doesn't matter what we're interested in. It's your views, the, the views you have on the issues that we think are important to human governance. Uh, that I didn't necessarily acquiesce to running for office at that point. However, they plied me with a couple of memos, uh, research on me, research on Tulsi Gabbard, uh, and research on the fact that they, they were advocating uh, a legislature of the people, which, of course, floats my boat. So when they led with that as, a, as a, something to address in my candidacy, uh, I then complied and said, it's okay, you can go ahead and do an exploratory committee. Well, they jumped on that, and it went from exploratory committee to persuading my wife that it was okay to do this, and also that <laughs> it was fine to, to go ahead and pursue uh, getting me on the debates, and then leading me into a situation where I sincerely am trying to get elected. So that's the process that took place. Uh, I met physically uh, with uh, Henry Williams uh, and uh, a gentleman by the name of Church. Uh, the, the David Oakes was ill when the others were coming out to visit with me. Uh, but I've, uh, you know, I'm, on, I'm on, a, uh, on the phone almost daily with David and Henry. Amazing. Uh, and so they're doing a, what I consider an extremely precocious job in <laughs> campaign. Now, I am not helping in any way. I'm not traveling. Uh, I'm, <laughs> only, I'm only responding like this instance to interviews of people who want to interview me. But beyond the interview, uh, the campaign is conducted by these 17, 18-year-old precocious wow. people. It's really right. amazing. I work with teens in my day job and, you know, for me, it makes sense that there's such um, enthusiasm behind you from young people. And I also, you know, am a person that luckily does not underestimate teens, but I feel like a lot of people have been very floored by the work that they do, which has been really cool to see. Yes, it has been, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> I think it's also, I think one reason that people really respond to it is it's super enjoyable to see this sort of like very young literacy coming from the account of someone who is older. Like it, it creates a dissonance sort of when you see like the picture of you with your sunglasses looking very cool. Um, I think people really enjoy, um, they obviously come across as very, uh, they speak the language of Twitter, I guess you would say. And they're, they're willing to say things that um, 
I think a lot of other, uh, you know, political consultants or media folks um, would not be willing to say on a candidate's Twitter. And it's um, it's been incredibly refreshing. We, I think a couple of us on the podcast have had a lot of Twitter interactions with them um, and they're bringing a sense of sort of joy or I don't know, maybe not joy, but jubilance um, to what is normally a pretty dour uh events, which is the, the, you know, the greater presidential election <laughs> campaign. Um, so it's been, it's been a lot of fun to see your campaign develop. Well, I've, I've enjoyed it as much as you, but uh, <laughs> truth be told, I don't read my Twitters. I, <laughs> I tweet. Well, they're great. <laughs> but I have had a friend of mine call me and say, Gravel, God, you're just doing some great tweet. <laughs> it's not me, it's these kids that are putting forth, but they're putting forth their views on issues that I already as- ascribed to. Yeah, exactly. Oh, awesome. I sometimes um, think about the history books of the future and how things like this are going to show up when like future generations are learning about this period and something has replaced Twitter and we're trying to explain like all the stuff that's <laughs> happening here. It's very amusing. Good. Uh, I'm glad. I'm very glad. It'll definitely be an interesting part of the history book. Um, speaking of your views, is there any kind of political label you would say you identify with or maybe labels? Well, I think yeah, I identify mostly with progressive, left-leaning progressives, and then, then some even beyond what would be normal in that regard. Uh But what you find is that the issues that really benefit the public are left-leaning issues. Uh, The conservative views, which are to shut down debate, to shut down criticism, that I don't feel that they serve the interests of the individuals, of the people in society to any meaningful degree. And so now you see the extreme of it where you have a Republican Party that has really gone over the cliff. Uh, they bought into Trumpism, which they felt was ridiculous to begin with, and now they are all trapped with the Trumpism of, uh, of the foolishness of foreign policy, the foolishness mm-hmm. of what they're trying to do in, uh, in immigration. It, it's just a very big tragedy that the entire Republican Party has gone over the side uh, with Trump in this regard. Will this only be a one-term situation? I don't know. I hope so. But I think what's going to be excuse me, significant in this process is the fact that, that the agenda that needs to be enacted to, to benefit the citizens has to be an agenda that's presented to the citizens themselves for enactment. And that's what, of course, I've been working on for the last 30 years, mm-hmm. is the creation and operation of a legislature of the people. Yeah. Yes. Um, so mm-hmm. switching gears a little bit, I wanted to ask about the um, rock video from your 2008 campaign. Um, if anyone hasn't <laughs> watched it yet. wonderful political ad. It's yeah. Amazing. If anyone hasn't watched it yet, you need to go on YouTube and just search Mike Gravel rock video, um, but then get off YouTube before it tries to turn you into a white supremacist. And then resume listening to this. But also a quick summary of the video. Um, it is Mike Gravel staring into the camera um, f- smolderingly for about a minute, a minute and a half. A lot, 
longer than you would think. And then um, he turns around, picks up a large rock, throws it into a body of water, and walks away. Um, and then it says, Microval 2008. And um, I, I'm a big fan of this video. Um, and I definitely ascribed a lot of my own meaning and metaphors to it. But I was wondering what the story was behind you making that video. The, this was a decision entirely by the young man, the two, the two uh, high school teachers that thought of this. What it is, as you just pointed out, it's, it's a metaphor for everybody's life. In other words, you focus on what you want to do with your life, you go ahead and do it, you cause some ripples, and then you march off to your demise. That is a metaphor for life and a meaningful metaphor at that. And when the when it came out in 08, what was interesting is that the mainstream media didn't understand what this was all about. <laughs> the, the kids uh, immediately understood this as a metaphor. And so we had to explain to mainstream media what this was uh, and because they didn't understand it. And that says something about the mainstream media and, of course, the adult community that governs our society, that uh, they really don't understand what needs to be done to bring about moral, healthy, free governance. Yeah, there's also, I just watched The Rock 2.0 video, um, <laughs> which is that video overlaid with other clips of, like, the other candidates in um, the, you know, 2020 election, yeah. which uh, was also a very powerful watch. The 2016 election. So No, 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 for 2020, they put, it's a Rock 2.0 oh, right, video. Right, right. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And you'll notice that I've gotten a little older. <laughs> we did not notice that we cannot confirm nor deny <laughs> so you know just in terms of a little bit back of background on us um we we do identify ourselves as like a leftist feminist podcast um and we often talk about things in terms of anti-capitalism um particularly when it comes to democracy and so i think especially when you're talking about putting democracy in the hands of the people, we have often spoken about that on this podcast as it relates to um, overcoming these these obstacles to a free democracy that we, we find to be mostly tied up in capitalism. But I was curious as to what you think is the biggest obstacle for leftists in this 2020 election. It's overcoming the, uh, the control of mainstream media by the military industrial complex and Wall Street. Uh, and, and so when you look at what their agenda is, uh, truthfully, the public is impotent uh, in changing that. Regardless of who gets elected president, uh, we do not advance all that aggressively in what we should do in human governance. And this doesn't stem from just recently. We're talking about the flaw of representative government was the design of our government by the Constitution. And the Constitution essentially uh, was used to perpetuate slavery for infinity. Uh, and after slavery was to sanction the genocide that we did against indigenous people. We didn't enslave them, we just had a policy of annihilation. So that's our history. Uh, and, and, and this is, of course, where Joe LaCour 
uh, does a great job in these truths because she weaves uh, the issue of slavery right from the beginning uh, of our society all the way through to the present. And then there's no wonder <clears throat> that we are still racist today. Right. Uh, right. And it shows, uh, and it's because uh, our psyche has been so damaged by the period of slavery uh, and Jim Crowism and so damaged by what we did uh, in the genocide of indigenous people. Uh, and I don't think we'll ever outlive uh, that shortcoming, that damage that's been done to our moral psyche. Uh, it's, it's there, we have to learn to live with it, and we're not doing a very good job at that. I am, I'm, I'm sitting over here um, just losing my mind a little bit. I'm actually a history grad student, and so um, hearing you bring up um, the question of history, I specifically study uh, the history of slavery in the United States. Um, and so having that come up um, totally organically in this conversation is so exciting for me. And it was really exciting the first time you mentioned Jill Lepore. Happy to have her come up another time. On like a, a light note, what else are you reading these days? Well, I, I'm dyslexic. I'm severely dyslexic. Mm. <laughs> and so me I spend too. Yeah, and I spend about three hours reading, uh, but I, I don't read novels because I, I just don't have the, the time to do mm -hmm. that. So I, I read and follow current events. I'm, I'm absolutely fond and mesmerized by history. Uh, and I read across a new quote by uh, Hegel, mm. uh, and that is that, uh, you know, we, re we repeat history uh, because we... Uh, we know history by repeating it. So, <laughs> so it's on that score. What experience and history teaches us is that people and governments have never learned anything from history or acted on principles deduced from it. Yeah, that sounds correct. slightly different than what you were saying. Uh, we learn from we learn short, from. My mind is shortened, but but you get the message. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Course, so we, what, what you prove is by being able to find that so quickly. You prove that you have this <laughs> capability of the internet that I don't particularly enjoy. <laughs> I'm fascinated with my granddaughters. I just grab my, my cell phone and do unbelievable things with it. <clears throat> you hear that noise in the background? That's the, oh. that's the, the truck picking up the trash. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the shortened version of this quote was, we learn from history that we do not learn from history. Mm. That's right. Okay, I say think that's it again. the kind of vibe. Say it again. Say it again. Go ahead. We learn from history that we do not learn from history. That's right. Isn't that the truth? It is the truth. So, so perceptive. <laughs> we call that a synthesis. A synthesis. Okay. <laughs> yes. I've, been, I've been synthesizing all my life. Yeah. <laughs> Who do you think is most likely to win the nomination? And would you accept the position of Secretary of State? Uh, probably, I, I would accept any position, but I think I would be better uh, able uh, to accept being a counselor and so that I could advise uh, Bernie or Tulsi on all of the issues and primarily get their endorsement of empowering the people to make laws. Uh, th there's no uh, political person in my mind that even understands what I'm talking about 
because you see, they they get their power from people on election day by voting for them, and with this power, they maintain a monopoly of lawmaking, and that's of course uh, making laws is what's critical in human governance. Uh, and so, if if I can get Bernie or Tulsi to buy into, and and I'll be sending them a copy of my book, which will be out in August. Yeah, yeah. And the book outlines essentially the book is a manual of how to enact and make the law, uh, creating an, uh, an amendment to the Constitution and a Legislative Procedures Act that then provides for the operation of this legislature of the people in a very deliberative. A totally transparent and a totally integrity process of human governance. That's what's in the offing with this. And if we're successful, it will change the nature of human governance, not only in the United States, but around the world. Mm. That's an excellent answer. Yes. I know you spoke a little bit about this and particularly in getting um, the government into the hands of the people, but what do you think is the most pressing political issue of our time? Well, yeah, not to repeat it, the most uh, pressing issue is the ability to participate in their governance. We don't participate. All we do is vote and give our power away, and they monopolize that power. That, in my mind, is the most important issue that we face. So when you look at all the other policy issues like healthcare, education, uh, infrastructure, uh, changing the nature of a judiciary judiciary system, uh, these can all take place if you empower the people to make laws. But if the people don't have the power to make laws, none of these changes will take place. Do you think that if if there were I guess I hearing you talk about, you know, the mainstream media being tied into the military industrial complex. What that kind of makes me think of is uh, the media's complete shutdown in some ways of talking about global climate change. Um, and I guess I'm wondering, as as we're generally on this podcast uh, in our 20s, 30s and 40s, um, as folks that are going to be dealing with the repercussions of climate change for a long time, do you think that getting laws that are more in the hands of the people will have an effect on the way that we tackle the issue of global climate change? The, uh, what, what will happen is that if the people are able to make laws, they will then be able to enforce what we need to do with respect to capping uh, carbon emissions. Uh, to be able to use our power in the world to cap the carbon emissions throughout the world. Right now, uh, the Paris Accord, which we view as the high watermark in our efforts at, uh, at climate change, and also which, what Ortez uh, AOC has done with a Green New Deal, uh, these are all very, very good. Mm -hmm. The problem is is that they're not enforceable. And that, that, of course, the people can make that enforceable if they have the ability to make laws. So I see two threats that face humankind. One is the long-term threat of our survivability with the climate change, uh, the environmental pollution. And the other, of course, is the accidental or on purpose destruction of the planet through the use of a nuclear device. Mm. Mm. Very cool. Thank you. 
Do you feel like you're seeing the effects of climate change in Alaska? Are you in Alaska right now? Or are you still no, there? I, I live. I live in California. Oh, wow! Well. Oh, very much so. Uh, the The issue of the tundra melting mm. and releasing the methane is accelerating at an unbelievable uh, pace. I, I I check every so often the temperature in Anchorage as opposed to here in New York. And I got to tell you, there's been a big change in Alaska. There's been a big change in melting the ice cap, uh, and and of course opening up uh, the Northwest Passage. Uh, so these are all changes that are significant uh, and and should be monitored. Uh, and what we find is with the methane release that it's accelerating at a faster rate than we ever thought possible within the scientific community. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's always gets me down talking about this one. <laughs> well, let me talk a little bit about the other one, which you haven't addressed yet, and I think it's much more serious. Uh, today, the Congress and the uh, Pentagon are in the process of spending what they say is $1.7 trillion. It's going to be more like three or $400 trillion, mm. and that is to refurbish our nuclear arsenal. Uh, that is the uh, the weapons that the Air Force has, the cruise missiles that the Army has with their silos, yeah. and with the Navy with their Trident submarines. Now, so you really understand the import of this. We have uh, 12 Trident submarines, uh, and these submarines each have a capacity of 280 warheads. One submarine could hold the world hostage, and of course, these are uh, are deployed in the oceans of the world, very difficult to monitor their, their presence. And so what's happening now that we're going to spend all this treasure refurbishing them is, is the fact that the leadership politically that are involved with this and the military leadership are literally insane because what they, what they don't seem to realize when they're talking about using nukes uh, offensively or defensively, is that these nukes are not usable. There's no way that you can use that any country, any any of the uh, eight countries that have the nukes, if, if they were to unload just, just one attack, never mind retaliation, attack, it would trigger a nuclear winter and all of us would die a very miserable death in a short period of time because the sun would be eclipsed for decades. So, so when you spend that much treasure on a weapon, it's not usable. It's not usable. You don't even need to retaliate. Just the first use of it just triggers the nuclear winter. So why would we spend all this treasure on a weapon that is not usable? It, it, it really is questions the insanity of our political and military leadership. Not to undercut the seriousness of what you're saying, but I just love that you're using the word treasure instead of money. <laughs> it gets wonderful. the point across for sure. Yeah, it, 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 makes, it gives it more gravity, you know? Oh, it, it is our treasure. When you're, when you're stealing billions, trillions of dollars that should be going to the well-being of people yes. as opposed to going to inert weapons of mass destruction yes. or weapons of war, who, who, we go, who do we go want to go to war with? Who's a threat to us? We don't have any threats to us. We create our enemies, yes. and by and large, they're terrorists. But as far as nation states, here we're trying to 
uh, to demonize China and Russia. It serves no purpose at all. Russia is not going to attack anybody. They, here, they want to sell their oil and gas so that they can have a stronger economy. China is, is, is spends, uh, what, we spend four or five times what China spends on their defense. And then we make a big deal of this, uh, these uh, islands in the South Pacific, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, the South China Sea. Well, all those islands are, and this is not to make fun of it, uh, I really mean this, is these are stationary, unsinkable aircraft carriers that, that line the two sides of the South China Sea. And what the, why they, they are doing this is because their lifeblood, their economic lifeblood travels through the South China Seas. And, uh, and so if we were to try to constrict their ability, we could strangle their economy. And so they're providing for that to set up these islands. That, and let me repeat, these islands are essentially aircraft carriers that cannot be sunk. So, and so we're, and they only have two real aircraft carriers other than these islands. But these islands are defensive in nature, totally. And so for us to criticize this and try to make this an issue, <clears throat> and keep in mind, when China... Uh, with its defense posture, wants to protect the, uh, the, the South China Seas, this is a benefit to Japan and South Korea and North Korea and Singapore and all these other nations. But China is the only one that has the capability of seriously doing this from a defensive point of view. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so switching gears here, we have another host, Walida, who could not join us today, but it was very important to her that we get your take on Joe Biden. <laughs> so I've served with Joe and know him very well. Uh, I consider him a nice guy, but, but ideologically, I think he's a Neanderthal. Yes. Uh, I think that uh, with the Hyde Amendment that just got exposed, shows you how bad he was in that regard what he did in savaging the appearance of Anita Hill uh, was beyond the pale. Uh, what, Absolutely. Uh, he, Absolutely. Could, he could have let two other ladies to corroborate, uh, and that would have been the end of the hearing had they corroborated Anita Hill. He didn't let that happen. And he let uh, our inspector, Republican from, from uh, Pennsylvania, savage, savage Anita Hill. And I have great admiration for her because she handled herself with such a plum. We had the same thing now happening with Kavanaugh. Uh, and and it's, it's never ending. And of course, when whenever I see that the ERA amendment has not been able to become law yes. or amend the Constitution, I think it's a shame on our country. Mm -hmm. uh, now, with the uh, empowering the people to make laws, I'll tell you, we'd get the ERA passed in a heartbeat. Um, but, but that's not the case right now with the politicians who, who condone. Uh, and though we're getting more women elected to public office, we don't see an, uh, a substantial change in the inequality between male and female in terms of economics, in terms of culture. Uh, and now, we do see some improvement in athletics. And I think it's so exciting. And yet you see the complaints right now with women in tennis that they don't make as much money as men do. 
and they should mm-hmm. because I think a, a women tennis match is just as interesting. Uh, or in, in, I prefer to watch women's tennis than men tennis any time. So th- those are the issues that we face today, and they could be addressed because half the population is is female, and uh, and so if we equip the entire population to be able to make laws in a legislature of people, then can you imagine what the impact that women would have on the lawmaking process and able to address the problems we face? Okay, that's a revolution that needs to happen. And the only way to happen is if you empower the people to make laws. We live under laws. Laws is law is the heart of human rights. Law is the heart of civilization. And to be denied the ability to make law because the representatives they hold monopoly over us is is a is appalling. Amazing. Um <laughs> So you you speak a lot about militarization abroad, um, and you know we just kind of went into depth about this. But I was curious if you could tell us your views on the increase of militarization at home in our police force. We've we've acculturated our society to militarism. That's really what's happened. All you got to do is watch a football game or or a major athletic event. Then they haul out the flag. They haul out the services. They march around. Uh, and they have a flag the size of the football field. The, the, this, is, this is all, in my mind, a phony patriotism. Uh, and of course, we, we, what we should be attacking is this concept of my country right or wrong. If my country is wrong, we should prosecute the wrongdoers, uh, whether they're criminals or... And, and if my country is doing the right thing, we should applaud it and help do the right thing. But that's not what's prevalent. What's prevalent is a phony patriotism like country right or wrong. And politically, you see this my party right or wrong. So uh, I was kicked out of the Democratic debates in 08 because I was critical of the Democratic Party at the same time I was advocating changes to be made. Now, if you're, if you're not critical of when things are going wrong, then there's something wrong with you. Uh, and, and so then to support, regardless of what the issues are, to support my party, right or wrong, in my mind, is a great immorality. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. So we're getting towards the end of our time. Um, we just have a couple questions left for you. But as we've been talking about, you've had a long career um, in politics in various positions. And I was wondering, what are you most proud of from your career in, of politics? The, uh, what I'm most proud of is the fact that uh, of releasing the Pentagon Papers and fighting the battle of secrecy and authoritarianism in government. Uh, and, and so when I look back as to what I could have done, I should have done more. I should have been more of a maverick. I should have raised hell more often than, than I did. Uh, because it's you, by questioning authority, you then empower yourself to make change. If you don't question authority, you're not even aware of what you need to make a change. Wow. That is so well said. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's great advice. Incredible. Be more of a maverick. Yes. yes. <laughs> Raise more hell. Yes. Raise more hell. That's what I should have done. <laughs> yeah, I didn't do enough. Well, well that's here. what we're trying to do here too. So we're, we're glad that we're on the same page. Um, <laughs> 
Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners before we say goodbye? Well, to repeat what I said, that the most important thing is to bring about the enactment of a legislature of the people and uh, the process to legislate through the process. That's, that's where it's at. That is the heart touchstone of it all. Empower the people. You've heard the cliche that, you know, uh, give a person a fish, you feed him for a day, teach him how to fish, and you feed him for a lifetime. The same thing with human governance. Uh, give the people the power to make laws, and they'll make policy to their best interest for the rest of their lives. Senator Gravel, this has been so incredible. We're so, so happy to have had the opportunity to speak with you. We really appreciate you taking the time um, to speak with us. Uh, you may not know this, but we generally only have uh, women as guests on our show. And But we were so excited about the opportunity to have you on. So <laughs> thank you for being one of the only men that has been on our show. <laughs> Well, I'm honored in that regard. Thank you very much. Yeah, you, yeah, thank you, you did. so much. <laughs> well, there we have it. That was our conversation, our much-anticipated conversation with Mike Gravel. Um, it was really fun to talk to him. He's really an interesting person. I love that he, uh, he kind of has his line about getting people... Um, getting the government into the hands of the people it has very much this like uh, sort of like I don't know it makes me think of like old old school libertarians in England um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I really do wish um, it was a fantastic conversation and there at the end I, I thought that I should ask more I, I wish I had asked more about how he sees that working. I'm very curious about this idea of, he seems to be suggesting like a direct democracy um, that is connected completely with legislation. Um, I should have asked more about his vision for that. Oh, we only, we only had so much time. Um, also y'all don't know this y'all listeners but he had his video on the entire time and none of us did and so we just got to like watch him chuckle at different things and like think about things <laughs> and his mannerisms and it was amazing so, he did yeah. not seem at all concerned that he had his video on and he could not see us no <laughs> i don't even know if he knew we could see him but he chuckled during two of my questions and i was like texting being like microvel thinks i'm funny yes. <laughs> yes. he doesn't seem like very easy to laugh so i think that's a good thing to be proud of yeah, yeah. he also yeah. told me I'm that i couldn't be further from the truth but we're gonna interpret that as that i was spot on <laughs> well yeah because then he proceeded to repeat nothing contrary to what you <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah, i think absolutely. i think yeah i think it was a, a misstatement um it was i mean oh my gosh what a great interview um, the fact that he brought up Anita Hill totally unprompted. Yes. Um, I was like, yeah. I was like literally crying over yeah. here. You know, oh. I was on mute so nobody could hear me sniffling. I also have a cold. So that's probably, you know, that's part of it. Of course, obviously I wasn't just crying cause my internet grandpa brought up Anita Hill unprompted <laughs> my personal hero. Um, <laughs> I wanted to bring up that your thing that your Twitter is Mike Ravel reply guy, but I felt like he would not. 
No. He would be so confused. (laughs) Or he might just be like, oh, that's nice. Thank you. (laughs) I I tried to allude to it when I was like, a lot of us have interacted with your teams on Twitter. Um, Me personally. (laughs) I had a question too that I I wished I had asked um, and I I just couldn't quite formulate it in in time. um, But I was thinking about his comments about the mainstream media and how problematic that is, which I think most of us would agree with, but I'm not sure what, how we fix that in a capitalistic society, Mm -hmm. um, because we do still need journalism and we need access to good information. And I don't think any of us thinks that Alex Jones is the answer to that. So it's kind of like a question of like, how, how do we solve for that? So I guess that's a, a question for another time or when he becomes president and we get him back on the show. Yeah. <laughs> president go. Gravel, so happy to talk to you again. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. Friend of the pod. <laughs> we have a legislative piece to advance. Yeah. <laughs> that we can now introduce directly to you as per your new system, yes. sir. Yes, yes. <laughs> Amazing. What a blast, truly. I mean, honestly, I still am like in awe. And he was so friendly and easy to talk to that it was like, I mean, our listeners may know, like, even when I said like that, just to let you know, we're anti-capitalist. Like, it's clear like he wasn't, you know, necessarily ready to talk about dismantling capitalism. But I think a lot of what he talked about is, you know, touching on Right. Stuff we care about, for sure. He has a lot of anti-capitalist, a lot of critiques of capitalism, but framed, you know, framed in, in you know, terms of the military industrial complex, which like, you know, if you think about why, why are we spending so much money on, you know, nuclear warheads or what have you, you can't, you can't really answer that question without exactly. going into, you know, who's making money off of that, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I see him as a, a fellow traveler, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There were a lot of moments. Oh, Oh, go ahead. Oh, 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 it's a season of the bitch moment. (laughs) No, you go. There was just several moments where I wanted to be like, sir, have you been reading a rent? (laughs) Just like, not necessarily with like the content of his philosophies, but more with like the tenor of like his insistence on like the primary nature of law. Um, I was like, yeah. Uh, I'm feeling some Hannah Arendt vibes right now. Mm. I love it. Well, we're so grateful for that opportunity. (laughs) Yeah, I was just going to say I liked at the end when, Laura, you were like, by the way, just so you know, the point of this podcast is actually that we don't talk to men. So congratulations. (laughs) I'm just like smiling. (laughs) Well, I felt like I felt like at that point we had like broken the ice. I think if we started with that, maybe it would have out yeah but i was Pressure. like just wanted to let you know like this is a big deal for us too you know he was happy he was smiling yeah i was gonna be like so thank you for speaking on behalf of all men <laughs> <laughs> he, he represented his gender well yeah I he say, did truly that's what i was about to say i was gonna be like well you represented all men really well today thank you yeah but like, as a man What's the deal with football? <laughs> well, he answered that question for us. So he, he was like, "I prefer True. women's tennis." I'm going to talk about Anita Hill. Like <laughs> he did, he did the work for sure. <laughs> yeah, what a great guy. Yeah, it was enjoyable. Well, that's the end of our episode. Um, as always, you can rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Um, you can tell us how great an interview this was and how much you love us. 
Um, <laughs> you, it actually is broken, so you only can give five stars. Like, it's all iTunes will allow for us. We tell how it works. <laughs> and you can follow us at Season of the Bee on Instagram or Twitter. Um, find us and like us at Season of the Bitch on Facebook. You can slide us money on Patreon. Um, which you should do so that we can, you know, talk to more big name people like Mike Ravel, but probably not more men. Um, <laughs> but we'll think about it. It depends. Anyway, so that's it, right? <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah, hell yeah. Wow, you killed it. Love you guys. <laughs> love, love you. you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Love you. Bye. Bitch.